Well, there wasn't really time to give a whole lot of talks about delusion. <laughs> it's too bad. <laughs> that would have been really good. So I want to um, speak tonight about a little bit of everything and do it to begin with in the context of the evolution of faith. In the uh, Buddhist tradition, faith uh, as a quality of mind is not considered like a commodity or, or something that we either have or we don't have. And if we don't have enough or we don't have the right kind, then we're going to be condemned. But instead, faith is like a quality of the heart that unfolds as self-respect unfolds, as understanding unfolds, as strength of mind unfolds, as one own, one's own experience of the truth unfolds. So it's not considered a quality that is separate from the growth and the development of all those other things, but rather is accompanied by them and supported by them. The word in uh, Pali is sada, and it's usually translated as faith. What it means is to place one's heart upon, to offer one's heart. And the ability to do that is dependent on, first of all, knowing that we have a heart, and knowing secondarily that that is an important gift. That's not nothing when we give our hearts over to something or someone. So it needs to be done with understanding. The first uh, stage of faith that's usually talked about uh, in the Buddhist teaching is something called bright faith. And that is likened to falling in love. It's just this immense opening often. Sometimes it's very dramatic. Sometimes we feel like we've been locked into a very dark and closed, confined room with the door shut, and then something happens and the door swings open. Maybe we meet a teacher, or we hear a teaching, or somebody reads us a poem, or plays us a piece of music. Something happens. And instead of the sense of being shut down, locked in, there's a sense of openness of possibility. It's like falling in love. I think one of the best descriptions I ever read about it actually uh, was last year when I was in Cleveland for a conference. And I left the conference with some friends um, to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and went to the Bruce Springsteen exhibit. And at that exhibit, on the front of the glass, they have a letter that Bruce Springsteen wrote when Bob Dylan was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he's talking about, in this letter, the first time he ever heard Bob Dylan's music. He said, I don't know how old he was at the time, but he said, I was riding in a car with my mother, and Bob Dylan came over the car radio. And he said, it was like, a giant boot came down and kicked open the door of my mind. And then my mother said, that man can't sing. <laughs> so, 
But we know that feeling, it's like so immense, it's so exhilarating, it's so intoxicating, it's wondrous, it's fantastic. And many of us begin with something like that. Something happens. And that door swings open. That's bright faith. But while it's considered very much a kind of necessary, often beginning, an important step to leave that which is convenient and familiar. It's considered also to be sort of unsteady. For one thing, our sense of exhilaration, of love, is externalized in some way. It's not necessarily completely grounded in our own feeling of what is true. And so it's vulnerable. We might, for example, meet one teacher one day and fall in love. And then we meet another teacher another day and we think, well, forget that other person, I'm following this one. So it's not, it's not very rooted. And in some ways it's bigger danger has to do with the fact that we can fall in love with the feeling and feel so dependent upon it and what seems to be the source of it which is often another person, that we become frightened. We become afraid to ask questions. We become afraid to point out things that maybe make us uneasy or we find difficult because we don't want to be in any way removed from that source. And so that's the point at which what we call bright faith becomes what we conventionally call blind faith. We're afraid to ask questions, to doubt, to wonder, to check things out. To move from bright faith to the next stage of faith, which is called verified faith, demands that we question, that we wonder, that we investigate, that we insist on seeing the truth for ourselves, that we ground our sense of what is true in our own vision, our own seeing, our own experience. And that is done through practice. The Buddha, of course, is very famous for having said, don't believe anything. Don't believe anything just because I said it. Don't believe anything because a great elder has said it. Don't believe anything because you've read it in a sacred text. He said, put it into practice. See for yourself if it's true. So we have to have the kind of confidence in ourselves that lets us put something into practice, that demands we put something into practice. We have to have enough of a spirit of exploration and adventure to put something into practice, not to stand aloof and apart and sort of judge it or, or be cynical, like this couldn't possibly work or couldn't work for me, when what we really need to do is take a risk and put ourselves there and see for ourselves if it's true. We need to practice. The way we question, the way we doubt, the way we investigate, the way we wonder is through looking. We need to be able to give things a try, immerse ourselves enough so that a process can speak to us. 
this kind of, you could call it doubt, it's, it's almost like a wholesome kind of doubt, is so different from the skeptical doubt, which we can also have, where we stand apart and removed. I think one of my uh, favorite examples of that is from the time of the Buddha, from the story surrounding his enlightenment, where they say that, of course, the, the Buddha was enlightened sitting under a tree, and then spent about 49 days in the vicinity of the tree before he got up and left to walk to a nearby town. And he spent seven days, they say, doing walking meditation and seven days happily contemplating something, I think the law of dependent origination. And uh, I think very charmingly, he spent seven days gazing in gratitude at the tree for having sheltered him. So seven times seven was 49 days. Then he got up and walked. And they say that the first person he encountered uh, in this very famous story was so struck by the Buddha's radiance. I mean, here it is just 49 days after his enlightenment. He was so struck by his incredible radiance that he came up to him and said, Who are you? You know, what are you? Are you a human being? Are you a celestial being? Who are you? And the Buddha responded by saying, I am awake. I'm an awakened one. And the guy said, eh, maybe, and he walked away. <laughs> and there's something, maybe because I'm from New York, <laughs> there's something in me that kind of likes that, eh, maybe, you know. I mean, why be gullible? Why believe that? That's an awesome statement. I am awake. You know, why, why take that for granted? But what if he hadn't walked away? What if he'd stayed? And asked a few more questions, like, what do you mean you're awake? Can anybody be awake? How about me? Is there a path? Is there a way? What would it mean? You know, how do I try it? That's a very different kind of questioning than walking away. So what's crucial for us in deepening our faith as well as our understanding is being willing to be there, to show up, to be present, to put something into practice wholeheartedly, to let it speak to us, to investigate subsequent to an experience, not just to remove ourselves. So it's a living practice. It's not a question of recitation or admiration. It's not a question of building a monument to a tradition. It's a question of bringing it to life. Bringing it to life in our encounters, our very day. Using the practice to diminish the force of grasping and aversion and delusion in our lives, to put it into practice, to see for ourselves what is true. And that is really the essential thing, to verify our faith, not to be dependent on external markers or uh, people. Wisdom is called sometimes in the tradition a self-witness truth. No one can give it to us, but then no one can take it away from us.
we have grown to see through our own practice. I think we, we live in a society where it's so easy just to dwell in what is abstract, to have a sense almost of fulfillment or satisfaction when we think about something, and that's so different than bringing it out, seeing what it means in this situation or that situation. And when I did go to India uh, all those years ago, I had studied Buddhism a little bit in college, like I said, you know, and I'd written term papers on things like dependent origination. Now, dependent origination um, is a very profound uh, teaching, but to, to simplify it drastically, you could put it this way. The Buddha said that we see the world in every moment in one of six ways. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, or through what is called the mind door of thinking and imagery and so on. So every moment we see the world in one of six ways. And we perceive each one of those moments of contact as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's a lot of reasons why we might perceive something as pleasant one day and unpleasant another day. So it's not a kind of solidified uh, linkage there. And I'll talk about that later. But in the moment's perception of a sight or a sound, we experience it as pleasant, painful, or neutral. And then the Buddha went on to say that our habitual tendency when that experience is pleasant, whether a sight or a sound or whatever, when it's felt by us to be pleasant, is to grab it, to want to possess it, to own it, to hold it, to keep it from changing. And when that experience is unpleasant, our conditioned tendency is to push against it, to strike out against it, to want to make it go away, to hate it, to fear it. And when that experience is just neutral, we go to sleep. You know, it's not enough uh, to enliven us enough to actually connect or be there with it. And then the Buddha went on to say, there is a way to fully experience the pleasure of something without that extra thing of wanting to grab it, to hold on, to keep it from changing. And there is a way to experience fully the painful nature of something without closing down, trying to push it away, trying to seize control over that which we could never control, without hating it, without being so afraid. And there is a way, he said, to actually wake up not be so numb, not be so disconnected when things are just kind of neutral. And that way is mindfulness, where we can fully experience pleasure, pain, and neutrality in a different way. So that's the law of dependent origination. Now, one of the interesting things about that teaching is that uh, the Buddha does not seem to be saying that as we progress in the practice, everything will sort of, 
morph into this gray blob and there won't be any more pleasure and there won't be any more pain. Just this strange kind of neutrality. Sometimes people think about really developing in meditation practice and they fear that kind of state, you know, the gray blobness of life. Other people long for it. They think, I can't wait, you know, until everything is sort of morphed and that's all that's left. But it doesn't happen anyway, so it doesn't matter what one may be uh, holding as an image in one's mind. We can experience the pleasure, the pain, and the neutrality in a very different way. So I'd gone off to India, you know, as a college student, having proudly written term papers and things like dependent origination, and I think I knew what it meant. Then I went, you know, months later, entered my first intensive 10-day retreat, and I sat down uh, with his teacher, who maybe on the fourth night or so of the retreat gave a talk on dependent origination. And I had this amazing sort of inner dialogue going on. He would be speaking, just as I did, you know, the six ways of experiencing the world. And, and I would sit there and think, wow, this stuff is so incredible. I must have been a Buddhist in a previous life because here I am, you know, and I'm so young and this is so inspiring. It means so much to me. If only I could get rid of my knee pain. I know I could get enlightened really quickly. You know, and then he would go on and describe in greater elaboration pleasure and pain and neutrality and the prospect of not getting so caught in it. And I would think, wow, if only I could get rid of my knee pain. I just know, you know, this stuff is so meaningful to me. And he would go on and I would think, well, maybe what I'll do is I'll go down to that yoga ashram in South India and I'll do Hatha yoga for six months and I'll completely stretch out my body. And when I come back, there won't be any more knee pain. And then I'll get enlightened really fast. And it took me a very long time to reconsider and to realize that what this teacher was talking about, and in fact what the Buddha had been talking about, was my knee pain. Here's an unpleasant experience, a touch sensation in the present moment. What was I going to do about it? So there's no question of like deferring or abstracting or waiting, thinking, oh, well, maybe next week I'll have a better experience. Then I can pay attention. It's now. It's absolutely now, completely now. Every moment we experience the world in one of six ways. How are we with that? It's so crucial to make this real because that is where the transformation actually happens. We make it real. And so very commonly, you know, at the end of a retreat, as many of you have experienced, we will really urge you to try to keep on practicing in a formal way, in a dedicated way. When I left my first retreat in India, my teacher told us that we should sit for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. And actually, living in India, it wasn't that impossible because we weren't doing anything. 
you know, very occasionally you'd mail a letter or something like that, you know, or there wasn't a whole lot happening, um, especially then, you know, in those days. And, uh, but still, it, it had its own challenges, you know, let alone what people encounter in a much more complex kind of life with family and work and responsibilities and uh, so much going on. And I have come to feel very sincerely, not as a, a consolation prize, you know, but, but really quite sincerely, that the most important thing, I think, is the everydayness of it. It's maybe not going to be very extensive. It's not going to be, um, you know, quite long each day or even many days. But there's something about sitting down to do it every day or walking, you know, is, is also... Um, great. It's it's the dedication. It's like, okay, this is the training period. This is where I'm bringing my values to life. This is where I'm seeing when it's my knee pain. What do I feel about pain? You know, not when it's an abstract concept out there somewhere. So every day, like bringing it to life in some way. If you only have five minutes on a particular day, I absolutely believe it's worth doing. It will do something. It's like alchemy. And of course, just as the first days of a retreat, an intensive retreat like we did here, are quite difficult, very often the first little bit of a sitting at home is quite difficult. That's the time often when the most kind of stirred up thoughts are just continually barraging us. I forgot to call so-and-so, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And what about that sound of the refrigerator? I don't think that's a normal sound. Maybe I should call a repair person. I don't know about calling a repair person. You know. And if we only sit for as long as that takes, that's still good. It's almost like a, a discharge of stress. you know. But if we can sit longer, it's like we get to go through that and then we get to go deeper. So if you sit for half an hour, clearly that's you know going to give you more time than those five minutes. But if you've only got five minutes, do it for the five minutes. It's really, it's very, very important. That is how a kind of bright faith and enthusiasm and sense of possibility and that things can change and that we can be different gets made real. It's step after step. It's moment after moment. It's putting it into practice. Nothing happens that quickly in a sense, but it's quick enough. I absolutely love this image that the Buddha used, um, which like many images are extremely simple. He said something like, the mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness or loving-kindness moment by moment, the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. I used the example here once in a very rainy course we taught. Not here, <laughs> before Spirit Rock was built, where we had buckets everywhere. So it was the perfect example. Um, 
The mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness and loving kindness moment by moment, the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. And I love that example right from the beginning, from the first time I heard it, because right away I could see myself standing by that bucket doing one of two things. One was looking inside and being filled with just delight at how things were going to be when it was completely filled. You know, just standing there looking at that bucket and thinking, oh, you know, it's going to be so great being fully enlightened in New York City, like kind of floating down the streets. It's going to be so fantastic. And not bothering to add the next drop. You know, not taking that moment's experience and using it to add another drop of mindfulness or another drop of loving kindness or compassion. And of course, I could see the opposite tendency, which would be for me to stand by that bucket and sort of look inside and think, oh, that's pretty dreary. That's so empty. That's never going to get filled. And once again, you know, so, so overtaken by discouragement or a sense of being defeated, not having the patience and the humility to add one more drop and one more drop. And since that time when I first heard that image and, and my mind went to those two places, I've added another one, which is standing by that bucket and completely overlooking it into someone else's bucket and saying, how are they doing over there, you know? There are lots of ways we can tell ourselves a story or tell the world a story about how it will someday be or never be. But our work is the same. It's pretty streamlined. What about this moment? And this moment? And this moment? This is why we need to practice to make it real. To have the patience and the humility and the sense of endeavor and wholeheartedness to really make transformation real. So we practice. And when we see the nature of things, we do come to that sense of verified faith. It's not that we lose bright faith altogether, but it becomes grounded, it becomes steadfast. We have a sense of what is true because we've seen it for ourselves. And this is very much about the three characteristics that Steve spoke about last night, to see the changing nature of everything, how evanescent, how fleeting it all really is. To see the unsatisfactoriness and to see the emptiness or essencelessness, the transparency of all the different experiences of life. When we practice in the formal sense, when we sit or we walk, these three characteristics are our actual meditation object. We're looking through whatever has come up to see change. 
or to see unsatisfactoriness, or to see emptiness. In the Chinese tradition, they say, if you want to understand the water, look at the waves. And that's what we're doing, a wave of anger, a wave of joy. We look through it, and this is what we see. We see change. That's another reason why there is no experience not worth having, or there's no experience that's wrong, that's bad, that is the sign of how completely you have failed at meditation. Because no matter what it is, it can show us a thing or two about change and all the other characteristics. And that is really the whole point. That's what frees us to be really different with pleasure, with pain, and with neutrality. One of the things that makes it so difficult to maintain a practice at home is that constant judging. Oh, this isn't good enough. It only works on retreat. I don't know. I'm not concentrated. Rather than realizing that everything provides an opportunity to see these deeper truths, and so it's all okay. Or alternatively, you could see that everything is something that um, we can work to have loving kindness in the face of, which is another way of casting one's practice. And just as we cannot control the unfolding of external events, we cannot control what will arise in our practice. So that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a really uh, kind of helpful preparation for life itself. It's very important, if you possibly can, not to be stepping away from your practice as you're doing it, to be assessing it. How am I doing? I don't know about this, you know. It was better yesterday but to do it, and then to do it again, and then to do it again, and see what happens. There's so much mystery, in a way, in an unfolding. It would be so nice that if everything were, were much more linear, if you could say, well, I was with three breaths yesterday, and I'm with eight today, and it'll be 19 tomorrow, and then 48 the next day, and so clear. Or, it's okay, I struggled in the beginning, but then I had the great breakthrough experience and it was perfect from then on for the rest of my life. It would be so nice. But, it's just not like that. It's such a strange unfolding. One of my teachers used the example, he said, um, imagine you were trying to split a uh, piece of wood with an axe, and you hit it 99 times, nothing happened. Then you hit it the hundredth time, and it breaks open. Mostly, at the end of that hundredth time, we think, okay, what did I do so differently than the other 99 times? Was my stance different? Was I holding the axe differently? But really, we just had to keep going. Number two, number three, number four, number five, you know, number 38, it doesn't feel so good. 
number 39, number 40. But every single one of those blows weakens the fiber of the wood. We have to keep going. And I would extend that image even even further than he did and, and say that it's not even just the mechanical act of, of weakening the fiber of the wood. It's what we are putting into it. It's that we're developing patience and care and endeavor. It's our sense of humor, our willingness to try, to take a risk, to not give up. That's what the real transformation is. That's where the real breaking open is. It's in us, not in the external experience. And it's such a mystery. You think nothing's happening, you know? You just kind of go on. Only many times to look back at that seemingly very bleak period and think, oh, isn't that interesting? I thought nothing was happening. And yet, this is why, um, you know, when I teach loving kindness, I have uh, such a fixation about it not mattering what you are feeling, what the emotional um, situation is, the emotional resonance even, uh, as you are doing the practice. Because I have seen so many times that one can do that practice thinking nothing is happening only in a real-life encounter or some situation to discover, oh, something was happening. In so many ways, the um, aspect of loving-kindness toward a neutral person is really my favorite because I think it exemplifies so much about the nature of the practice. Many times in the context of retreat, say at IMS, um, where we might do loving kindness throughout a very long retreat, at least in part, do loving kindness, and somebody will choose a neutral person there that they, you know, don't like or don't dislike. They're just kind of neutral. And day after day, or sometimes week after week, they'll come and they'll say, I don't feel anything, there's nothing happening, I'm not doing it right, they're still so boring, this person, I don't know anything about them, you know, like, this is really awful, I'm failing, and there's no feeling, and everyone else has feeling, and all of that. And then one day I'll get a note which will say, my neutral person wasn't at breakfast. Could you please go check on them? I want to know that they're okay. And I think, well, yeah, you know, I'm sure they're asleep. You know, like the last thing in the world they want is for me to go knocking at their door, you know, and say, are you okay? But that's what happens, you know. Without a sense of sentiment or emotion or kind of like personal affection, the bond is growing, it's developing. We care. We want to know that person's okay. We don't have a sense of us and them so much with them, but we have a sense of being linked, being in some way on the same team, even knowing nothing about them. So we have to practice as best we can with that kind of letting go or relinquishment. 
It doesn't mean that we never assess or evaluate, but we give it enough time of putting it into practice, making it real, seeing what happens. And then we look and we see. We come to this place of verified faith where we almost as though we've had certain kinds of experiences from which there is no turning back around change, around letting go, around opening, around compassion. And then just to finish the model, what happens is that we, we practice and we explore and we question and we verify and we come to see the truth for ourselves. And what happens is that the things we sense to be true are not held as beliefs or totems against change. It's not held as a sort of um, reified or objectified um, object, item, thing that we feel separate, like I know this and you don't. But we have practiced enough and absorbed enough of the, the reality, the living truth of what we've seen that we become that. It's like when I said in um, loving kindness practice that uh, the direction that loving kindness takes us to, the arena of life, it takes us to is the arena of intention or motivation. So it's almost as though we have, you could say a storehouse, I'm sure this is very bad Buddhism, but you know, let's say a storehouse um, of motivation or intention that is habitual. Perhaps it's fear. More often than not, we are motivated by fear as we act, as we speak, as we choose not to act, as we choose not to say something in a certain situation. Let's say it's fear that a large percentage of the time is, is the intention that is sparking or forming that action. And we do a practice like loving kindness, the fear will be replaced by a sense of connection, that sense of care. Can you go check on my neutral person? A sense of connection rather than separation. And it's not dogmatic. It's not like you give yourself a lecture and it's absolutely not adopting some kind of self-conscious persona. Like, oh, you know, I really have to act like I'm loving. There are all these people watching. You know, so I better. It's so completely other than that. It's not even thought through. We're just changed. And so that is called abiding faith, where what we know we have become, and we live from that in a very unselfconscious, now natural, unassuming way. Our motives more often than not, are born out of wisdom, generosity, care, loving-kindness, compassion, because we've seen into the nature of things. 
my favorite example um, these days really is the Dalai Lama in terms of that kind of abiding faith, that seeming ease of being, that most natural sort of expression of who he is in all of these different arenas. I recently, um, last year I went to uh, Toronto to see him. He was, he was doing the Kala Chakra initiation, which is um, you know, an 11-day ritual, teaching and, and ritual. And it, it was quite wonderful. Every morning he um, would be practicing up on the stage. And so if you were there in the morning, it was like doing your meditation with the Dalai Lama. It was really fabulous. And then in the afternoon would, would be the actual teaching or the ritual. And uh, he also, in a, a kind of ecumenical spirit, these days, he likes to have people uh, from different Buddhist traditions do chanting before he begins to teach. And he usually does that chronologically in terms of the spread of Buddhism around the world. So it begins with the Theravadan tradition of um, India and Southeast Asia and then moves on throughout Northern Asia and these different representatives from each tradition. And one day there was actually a rabbi there. I don't know how he fit in, but somehow he did his thing. Uh, I mean, usually it was just Buddhists. Um, so the first day it was, the um, first day he did this, it was uh, a Western monk and a Western nun from the Theravadan tradition who, who did this chanting, like, like the chanting we're doing, um, uh, and, and some others. And then the next day, for some reason, the monk wasn't there, and it was just this nun. So she got up there. Now imagine this scene. You're sitting in front of, I think it was over 6,000 people. The Dalai Lama is sitting behind you on a throne, and you're singing. <laughs> so she starts chanting, and it's this like, little wobbly voice, you know, and, and being, you know, from that tradition, I knew she, how much she was getting wrong. You know, the things like the refugees, he's supposed to do three times. She was doing once, and then everything was all kind of messed up. And, you know, and finally it was over. <laughs> you know, it was such a relief. And then uh, I think some Korean people chanted. And, you know, and he kind of went on through the, the chronology of, of Buddhism, Buddhism spread. And then at the end of all that, he said, I'd like to thank everybody who chanted, especially that nun. He said, she did a really beautiful job. It's not that easy to chant alone. He said, I had to do that once. I went to Japan, and they asked me to chant the Heart Sutra, and I had to do it all by myself. And he said, I made so many mistakes, it was like I invented a brand new Heart Sutra. <laughs> And then he looked at her and he said, I think perhaps you did too. <laughs> Which was so sweet, you know. It was just so beautiful and so kind. And then she came up to me, because I know her. She came up to me that afternoon, and she was radiant. She was like so beautifully shining. And she said to me, would you like to chant with me tomorrow? <laughs> And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> That's okay. 
But it was so unfeigned, you know, his actions. It was, it was so simple in a way, uh, but so impactful. It was so important, even in its simplicity and so kind. It was really very beautiful. And that's what I think of when I think of this um, embodiment of what one knows. It's not something pompous or grandiose or exalted necessarily at all. It's this moment, how we respond, what we call up, what we care about. And that really is the, the purpose of this practice. Just almost in a technical sense, many people ask, well, which practice should I do? And I honestly don't think it really matters, except that there will be great strengths that come from each that are distinct, certainly in terms of insight and wisdom and seeing into the three characteristics. That's the um, function, you could say, of mindfulness practice, of vipassana. And there is the... um, the liberation of the heart that is love is the phrase from the text that comes from not clinging, not being lost in attachment, not being lost in fear, dissolving that sense of difference between ourselves and others, being able to move through life from that place that is the function of a practice like metta. And people often will do both in some combination if that inspires them or interests them. Many times people will do a loving-kindness practice at the beginning of a mindfulness sitting because it will help set the stage for a different way of relating to all the many things that come and go. Many, many times people will do it at the end of a sitting or just do it, as I said the other day, you know, when I first was introduced to it, uh, to loving kindness practice, I wanted to just do it, so I did it for years. These days, I don't do it hardly ever, formally, in fact. Um, But I really love to try to bring loving kindness practice just into my day, walking down the streets in New York or sitting on an airplane or sitting at an airport um, or sitting on a bus or, you know, all of those various encounters. And here, too, it's, it's a question of being able to be simple, standing in line in the grocery store, getting more and more irate at how phenomenally slow the checkout person is, and then catching that momentum toward being irritated and stopping and just looking at this person and thinking, may you be happy, and seeing what happens. In that sense of creating our lives, like why be bound to habit? Why have that feeling of being stuck, no way out, when every moment yields a way out? when we can pay attention. So we practice 
we practice sitting, we practice walking, we practice mindfulness, we practice loving kindness. It really is the most important thing. And the answer, I think, to every other question is, does it help you actually do it? People ask, should, is it helpful to sit the same time every day? Should I sit in the same place every day? Should I sit with a group? Um, and a million other questions. And I think there actually is one answer, which is, if it helps you actually do it, then do it. Sometimes I think it is very helpful to have a place in one's house where you sit, because it's almost as though you can just walk by that cushion so many times before you actually sit down. It can help to sit with a group, to have that sense of, of friendship and support. It can help to sit the same time every day, but there are no rules. There's no, uh, there's no handbook in a way. We all have to see what's going to help me make it real and be willing to put the time and the energy into whatever that is, because that is what will actually transform our lives. Okay, let's sit together for a few minutes.